Welcome to Tent Talk, the podcast with Nancy McCrady, where we talk about life under the big tent of God's presence and the provoking process of discipleship. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tent Talk. This is Nancy McCrady, and welcome to this bonus episode for the weekend. I'm so glad to share our guest reader in our summer reading series. Uh, And this is my dear friend and NMM board member, Tina Kelly. She is reading from Ultimate Intention by Deverne Fromke. And I think it's chapter 25 on putting love in right order. And this was recorded when she and I were together recently in the nation of Germany. And I hope that this will be so encouraging to you that when the time is right, you will get this book, Ultimate Intention by Deverne Fromke. But be careful, my friends. Do not overconsume and just read, 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 read with no processing. If there's one thing I know that Tina and I would encourage you in is you must have someone that you're able to process things with while God is working. Because it's not just the issue of consuming information. It's about allowing God time to talk with you about what that information is for. Why is it speaking to you? Why is it getting your attention at a certain point in time? Is because He is on the move and there's something He is doing. So take a listen and I pray that this will be an encouragement to you as it is always to me to hear the truth. Love you all. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Glad to be with you today. I am going to be reading out of chapter five, chapter 25 of The Ultimate Intention by Deverne Fromke. Um, this chapter has meant so much in my life with the Lord, and uh, maybe at another time I will tell you why. But right now I'm just going to get straight into the chapter. So chapter 25, Love in Right Order. We've been carefully following the Father's program by which His children are brought to full sonship. We have seen how every vestige of anarchy must be dealt with before they are prepared for authority and the throne of the universe. However, before His body can have any real outreach to the world and be ready for the ultimate revelation, one thing is necessary. This is a supreme evidence of the turning of captivity. In this lesson, we pick up the theme of rectification again as we consider how he will set love in right order. I've always enjoyed the love story of the Song of Solomon, but it was not until a friend gave me the key to this book that I was able to comprehend the hidden lesson which God would teach us from it. The King James Version fails to give the clear meaning of the fourth verse of the first chapter. In the Latin Vulgate translation, we find this. He brought me into the winepress and set love in right order within me. Comparison with other versions confirms this is an accurate expression of the meaning. Is it possible that this lovely book was placed in the Bible to teach the rectification of love? The story presents the intimate fellowship between the bridegroom and his bride. As we note on the blackboard, it shows how the love of the bride moves from plane to plane and is finally set in right order. Mine. 
Song of Solomon 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 16, or his, chapter 7, verse 10. In the early stages of the story, the bride is filled with self-love. Love seems to her to be a one-sided relationship in which the emphasis is on me and mine. As with all love in this stage, possessiveness is the mark and undertone. In the second chapter, we hear the bride give the first summary of their relationship. My beloved is mine and I am his. Song of Solomon 2, 16. She seems far more conscious of what he does for her and what he gives and is to her than she is conscious of him. She interprets everything, including him, as it relates to her. Alas, she soon sickens of this kind of love. Sensing this, the bridegroom withdraws. For her own good, he must not foster her selfishness. His wisdom works a change. There is a progression of purifying of her love. She comes at last to say, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Song of Solomon 6, 3. The emphasis has changed, but there is still a mixture of getting and giving. Now she's becoming more conscious of him than of his gifts and of what she can bring to him. After she has stood the test of love, she finally is brought to the third phase. Love is purified and set in right order. She exclaims, I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Song of Solomon chapter 7 verse 10. Here's the perfect order. Love seeketh not its own. It is not possessive. It is alive to the other and is always joyfully given. The temper of love offered by a multitude of God's sons and daughters may be observed in the tenor of their prayer. Often, even 20 years after conversion, petitions still have the my and mine ring. There is still an emphasis on getting a blessing and beseeching God on the basis of self. Many have never known or have become insensitive to a true love relationship in which they live for and unto God. Three degrees of love. In one of his excellent editorials, Dr. A.W. Tozer, editor of the Alliance Witness, writes about the three degrees of love. He first points out that most Christian thinkers divide love into two kinds, love based on gratitude and love based on excellence. The love that springs out of gratitude is found in such passages as Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. In 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. This is an entirely proper and legitimate kind of love, and it's quite acceptable to God, even though it is the mo among the most elementary and immature of rig religious emotions. Love that is the result of gratitude for favors received cannot but have a certain element of selfishness in it. This is much like the first attitude of the bride whose love is aroused, it seems, only by the benefits received and does not seem to exist apart from them. But there is a higher kind of love which Dr. Tozer describes as the love of excellence. This love is awakened by considerations of God's glorious being and has in it a strong element of admiration. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. Song of Solomon 5, verse 10 and 16. Here then is the second stage of the rectification of love in the bride. 
This love of the divine excellencies differs from the love that springs from gratitude in that its reasons are more elevated. The element of selfishness is reduced almost to the vanishing point. We should note, however, that the two have one thing in common. They can both give a reason for their existence. Love that can offer reasons is a rational thing and is not attained to a state of complete purity. It is not perfect love. Next, Dr. Tozer goes on to describe that highest degree of love as it must be wrought in the bride. We must carry our love to God further than the love of gratitude and love of excellence. There is an advanced stage of love which goes far beyond either. Down on the level of the merely human, it is altogether common to find love that rises above both gratitude and admiration. The mother of a subnormal child, for instance, may love her unfortunate child with an emotional attachment altogether impossible to understand. The child excites no gratitude in her breast, for all the benefits have flowed the other way. The helpless infant has been nothing but a burden from the time it was born. Neither can the mother find in such a child any excellence to admire, for there is none. Yet her love is something wonderful and terrible to see. Her tender feelings have swallowed the child and assimilated it to her own inward being to such a degree that she feels herself one with it. The sum of what we say here is that there is a higher type of love, a supra-rational element that cannot and does not attempt to give reasons for its existence. It says not, I love because. It only whispers, I love. Perfect love knows no because. God in the end will work such a rectification of love in the hearts of all that are his. You will remember how he brought Job to say, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. There was no because in Job's love. Job have been brought to a place of complete surrender because he came to know who God truly is. Like Job, each of his chosen ones will belong to God with the affection that clings to him for his sake alone. Just as God is willing to belong to man as his God, sola gratia, by grace alone, so each member of Christ's body will belong to God on the same basis for naught. The bride must love without ulterior motive. Paul's longings for the Ephesians. When we realize the church is to be prepared as a spotless bride for her Lord, we wonder if this might not be the root of Paul's prayers in the early chapters of Ephesians. As we reach the middle of the first chapter, we become keenly aware that Paul was gripped by their need, and he longs for the Spirit of God to reveal it to them. We sense the groaning in his spirit as he twice breaks forth in prayer that the Father might grant this vision to be open to them. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul gives a broad panoramic background of the ultimate intention which has been in the heart of the Father from eternity. From eternity. Starting with the Father, Paul reminds them of his purpose for a vast family and discloses how they have been marked out for sonship, shows how all these plans are being accomplished through the Lord Jesus and how we receive through him all spiritual blessings, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption, redemption, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul refers to this as our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. We are not to minimize or overlook this inheritance, for the Father delights to share with his family. When man sinned, he provided the death and resurrection of his Son that we might be rescued from the fall. Yet all God has provided for man to receive is not the primary concern of Paul. As he breaks forth in prayer, we can catch the burden of his heart. He wants the Ephesians to have a new viewpoint. Up to this time, it seems, the Ephesians were occupied primarily with what God had done for them. They were content to camp in glory in what is mine. Their theme was my inheritance in him. How much they were like the majority of believers today. There is another inheritance. Now in verse 18, we hear Paul begin to pray that they might have the eyes of their understanding enlightened to see what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. How could these saints be brought to a concern for the Father and what he might inherit from them and through them? How could they be made alive to his interest? This is Paul's concern. In spite of all God had done for them, they were still inverted and man-centered. Must they continue to live as though all the universe revolved around them and existed for them? Paul discerned the need for a rectification of their love, a turning of their captivity, so they would truly live unto God and become his inheritance. Recently, as we drove to an evening service, a father confided to me, The more I have given to my children, the more they want. What shall I do to help them see their selfishness? Although he loved his family dearly, he was able to observe that they were self-centered. While they were concerned with what their father could do for them, he was concerned more for what kind of people they were growing up to be. This man had discovered a basic truth on the human level, but was only faintly aware that the Heavenly Father experiences the same problem with his children. As my friend wished to jar his children from their self-centered way of looking at things, so the Heavenly Father longs that his children may have a revelation of themselves in what they are to him. <clears throat> the Wine Press How does such a revelation come? Christ's death was the basis for receiving our inheritance. When we recognize that we died with him, then the Father begins to receive his inheritance as we walk in the newness of life. As in Solomon's song of the bridegroom, led his bride to the winepress of frustration, sorrow, and self-revelation, so he will lead each member of his corporate body to a winepress. This is the place where he allows loved ones, circumstances, and friends to inflict the deepest pain. Throughout the scriptures, the winepress is also pictured as the place where God uses the crushing instrument, the squeezing process, the pouring from vessel to vessel to bring forth the joyous wine of purified love. We are apt to relate all such experiences to the glory which shall afterward be ours, we may bravely and with firmly set jaw pass through multiplied trial, trials, never yielding to the work to the work of love that will bring for, forth joy now. 
But when the true rectification of love is wrought, we become alive only to the purity and sweetness of which pours forth to him and to those who are also his. He, oh, he becomes the constant center and object of our affection and attention. His body, his inheritance in the saints becomes central in our concern. We see clearly what Jesus meant when he said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. No longer is our Christian life an endurance test. It is an experience of overflowing love. Our constant prayer will be, Lord, show me how I can express this great love thou hast brought forth within me. Here is the fullness of rectification. When his bride truly becomes his, the Lord Jesus finds her ministering to his welfare, concerned primarily with his interest. Christ cannot deliver the kingdom to the Father until the church becomes alive to his inheritance in the saints. Can we see it? As we center our vision on our own needs and try to believe God for them, We are blind to his great love and his great purpose. When we allow him to take us to the wine press, we discover him. We find we have no other need, no other desire than to belong only to him for not. All right. That was such amazing truth. And I am so glad and so proud uh, that Tina uh, was on Tent Talk with us today. And I again say to you, will you let him take you into the wine press? Will you maybe take time to listen to this again? Because these are truths that Tina has read today, my friends, that we need to give time to him to let him make it real inside of us, to know him, and, my friends, then to make him known to whomever it is that God has put you with, put you in front of, had you walk past, have you engaged with, connect with, right? If we know him, then we can let him be known through us, wherever we are in our lives. So I pray this has been encouraging you today as we have continued our Summer Readings series. Love you all. Until next time. For more information on Nancy, please visit nancymccrady.com or follow her on social media at 